Greetings Grapple fans, and we're getting to the halfway stage of this December dismembering of an entire rivalry from start to finish within the promotion of Ring of Honor between the years of 2006 and 2009. It's Rerun the Rivalry Part 2, and it's myself, you let me tell you something, co-host Lorcan Mullen, and your other let me tell you something, co-host... Simon Cross... Working our way through every singles match that Brian Danielson and Nigel McGuinness participated in, in the promotion Ring of Honor, which was where they both really made their names in pro wrestling. And Simon, we've just come from the first instalment of this series of matches, their 2006 quadrilogy, ending with a 2 out of 3 falls match that lasted a one-all draw with a 60-minute time limit was reached. It's quite a while into the future, and the dynamics are starting to shift. So where are we, and what's at stake this time? Okay, so we are at Frontier Fieldhouse. That's in Philadelphia. When are we? The 23rd of June 2007. What's this match for? It's not for a belt, but it is for the number one contendership for the Ring of Honor world title. So, in the time between Danielson and McGuinness drawing back in August of 2006, and this is a full 10 months on from there, we are now in a different stage in the rivalry. They had met up a few times in between there in the ring, but it was in tag team matches. Four corners, eliminations, all sorts of stuff. But what was the key to this now is that this is a Brian Danielson and a Nigel McGuinness in very different kind of status within the promotion. So Danielson continued to defend the Ring of Honor world title. The night after this, he wrestled Colt Cabana to a one-all draw. And as I've said, one of the great things about Ring of Honor, the way they do their world champions, is they will give them multiple storylines going on at the same time with a variety of challenges. Which is why I am not against this criticism that some people have had of MJF being too ever-present on AEW TV at time of recording as the world champion. Because I think the world champion should be the target of multiple people and have multiple issues going on. On at the same time well yeah why why wouldn't multiple people g- be going for the highest prize in the company <laughs> exactly and so the colt cabana series ended as well with that two out of three falls match it had started with colt cabana having finally vanquished homicide in a very violent series of matches that was all about cabana being taken out of his comfort zone but finally finding something within him to win and then he gets a title shot against brian danielson and then loses in less than five minutes And then the story becomes Colt Cabana trying to rebuild himself from the start, going to the first match on the card and building himself back up, whilst Danielson just is able to dismiss him as his easiest challenge of all. Whilst he has trouble with McGuinness, Colt Cabana's a piece of piss. And then Colt Cabana gets at least one more rematch where it goes a lot closer. I think, again, it might be one of those ones where Danielson wins by a small package. Then they get to this two out of three falls match, and Colt Cabana pins Danielson in the first five or six minutes of the match to seal up that part of the story as well. And then it takes Danielson until the 59th minute to score the equalising fall. And as we said, during that match, he suffered a separated or broken shoulder, something really badly to his shoulder, to the point that people thought he might have to vacate the title or at the very least when he went into the big event that everyone was building up to that was being referred to in the Epic Encounter match. Which again was another example of like the status of that title match not being as high as it really should have been. It was him facing off against Kenta, 
who had been coming to Ring of Honor and tearing the house down throughout the year. I got a pinfall over Danielson in a tag team match with him and Marafuji against uh, Danielson and Samoa Joe, which also kick-started the feud between Danielson and Samoa Joe that was going throughout this year as well. So going into Glory by Honor, I, like many people, were thought, well, if they weren't going to put the title on Kenta anyway, they will now. And instead, Danielson guts it out. It's one of another one of the matches, along with the Unified match and this match, that often gets cited as the best match in Ring of Honor history, and he goes half an hour with all the issues that he has with his shoulder, and he still comes out victorious, which really makes Kenta look bad when you think about it. Well, <laughs> yeah. But he continues to defend it, but then by the time he reaches final battle, 2006, he's finally vanquished by Homicide, who ends his great epic storyline of redemption after that Cole Cabana feud as well. First coming to the aid of Ring of Honor against CZW, being the difference maker in those matches, and then falling out with Jim Cornette because he says, I'll give you three wishes. He says, I want a title match. I want something else. And I want Loki to be reinstated. Jim Cornette reneges on the third wish. (laughs) And then turns heel... And then it's Homicide building himself back up with Jim Cornette using the Briscoe brothers as his, like, higher muscle and Samoa Joe as his unlikely ally. So Homicide gets his big earned victory. That's like the equivalent of if Eddie Kingston were to win the AEW world title now. Or Kofi Kingston winning the WWE title at WrestleMania. One of those, you know, time-served kind of victories. And like a lot of those time-served victories, the title reign itself is pretty short-lived. As less than two months after that, he loses the belt to Takeshi Morishima, who was Noah's big young prospect, and big being the key word. I was going to say, I've seen pictures. No, I've seen clips, actually. Yeah. The harshest criticisms I've heard about Morishima are, why is an angry fat Japanese woman in her 40s the Ring of Honor world champion? Which is harsh. It is not not understandable. (laughs) And it's funny, actually, listening... One of the things I'll refer to a few times in this series going forward is Gabe Sapolsky's Book of Secrets, which was a video he made with kayfabe commentaries soon after he got sacked from the Ring of Honor booking job in 2008. And that definitely feeds into the Nigel McGuinness storyline as well. And, and Brian Danielson to a lesser extent. And it does seem like Sapolsky slightly regrets the Morishima reign. Uh... But there were some great matches in there, especially ones involving Nigel and Danielson. Because essentially the story after Morishima becomes champion, the invader has taken their title and it's up to the hero of the promotion to win it back for them. Mm. And who is that hero going to be? And it's almost certainly going to be one of Nigel McGuinness or the returning Brian Danielson, who comes back after taking five months off due to injury... Not just the shoulder, but just everything. The accumulation of injuries. I mean, that is the Brian Danielson way, is you have to literally stop him. (laughs) And what is interesting about the new Brian Danielson is that he he really does fall on this line of, like, never officially being heel, never officially being babyface, depending on who he's against whilst he was world champion. Like, he's a heel when he's against Roderick Strong and Samoa Joe. When he's against Nigel McGuinness, it kind of fluctuates from match to match. But when he's against Kenta or against the Embassy, then he's the babyface. So when he comes back without the burden of being the world champion, but he does have great purpose to reclaim the belt that was that he lost and broke his body essentially defending. And so he comes back and he's like, 
He's as close. This version of Brian Danielson is almost as close as you get to a technical wrestling indie version of, like, 96, 97 Stone Cold Steve Austin. Do you get where I'm coming from? I was in pure tweener. Yeah, basically. He's, But he's just, like, a badass, take-no-prisoners wrestler who's just too good for you not to cheer him. All right, I'm with you. And I think that whilst the story of this match, I think, to many people, should have been Nigel McGuinness trying to ascend that mountain, that it does seem like he's destined to be the next champion. Because the idea of a, of a two-time champion in Ring of Honor is still foreign at this point. And Nigel seems to be the one... Ring of Honor is all about creating new champions, new stars that very often then move on to TNA or wwe and then the cycle continues it happened with paul london it had happened with cm punk and it was gonna happen now maybe with nigel mcginnis but the first stage of that is him becoming the ace of ring of honor yeah and he'd become the de facto ace with danielson away in the time whilst danielson was holding the ring of honor world title mcginnis wasn't allowed to challenge anymore he was building up a babyface credentials by going up against tried and true heels within the promotion that you weren't going to get crowd turning against you so it was against like jimmy rave and it was against chris hero just really despised figures within ring of honor to which now nigel mcginnis is just pure babyface. no pun intended there <laughs> and again with takeshi morishima he's clearly like the guy that ring of honor are putting all their all their eggs in his basket it would seem until danielson turns up and i think you go into driven thinking is this going to be mcginnis's crowning moment that he finally surpasses danielson and he's the guy that ring of honor now build up to he's the anointed chaser yeah 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 but what's good about Ring of Honor is they keep multiple variances available to them. Like, they do have one point where they have Austin Aries challenge Morishima for the title. And the way they make it work is referring back to the fact that it was Austin Aries who beat Samoa Joe. And in particular, like, this finishing sequence that he hit Samoa Joe with when he won the world title. And they're referring to him constantly trying to go to that sequence in order to get the same victory over Morishima. Oh, okay. They have their backups, but it's pretty clear at this point, if anyone's beating Morishima for the belt, it's Danielson or McGuinness. Okay, yep. And also, when Danielson came back, I think maybe the experiences of him having, like, 60-minute matches, because he had, like, three, I think, 60-minute matches whilst as world champion, the one with McGuinness, the one with Colt Cabana, and then another one with Samoa Joe. In, like, one month, I think, he had that happen. Of course it was within one month. Of course it was. And he was having all these other matches. The 55-minute match against Roderick Strong, the one with Kenta, went 30 minutes. He was going long a lot more. But when he came back, he wanted to make it more intense, shorter matches. And whilst this match isn't a short match, it isn't a long match. And it's fought with an intensity and a pace that is much faster than the other matches. It's the second shortest match they've had so far but only by like four seconds i think the generation now match they had also went like 26 minutes 40 ish seconds but it felt watching it it felt like a like a 15 to 20 minute sprint essentially to me i don't know if that was the same with you well, we've got a massive juxtaposition, really, from the, from our previous episode where we were in Headlock City, and now, like you say, straight to fifth gear, almost, just absolutely hitting each other with... I mean, there are a couple of, like, technical moments at the start. Brian has a leg pick, Nigel gets his front face lock on, but by two, three minutes in, we, we're just at such a comparatively rapid pace, it, it, it's... 
I mean, it's not a rapid pace when you look at what independent wrestling was then and certainly is now. Maybe not independent wrestling in some cases. Cough, AEW, cough. But because it, the last match in the series we've watched was that match with the slow... Not the slow methodical pace necessarily but just the the long drawn out headlock, headlock segment because it became very evident that this match was going to go long it's night and day it's it's such a wild change from from the last singles offering we had yeah i think also what's significant to that is because it's a shorter match and because of the pace that they're working but i also think they're working in a reaction to the intensity of the crowd this is like pretty much high pitch frequency fan reaction from the start oh yeah because this is funny it was recorded on the 21st of june or whenever it was and it didn't air on pay-per-view until three months later because this was at the time that ring of honor was now introducing pay-per-views oh okay but this was really the start of the end of gabe sapolsky as a booker because everything was starting to fall out of time and continuity because they were doing pay-per-views but the DVD model, the release schedule for that was still like a month or two behind from when the event happens. So they're booking pay-per-views that are following on from live events that haven't yet gone outside of the people that attended the show. Nowadays, you'd stream it all online and everything. So there wouldn't be, it'd be like New Japan, how they just stream everything. And it wouldn't really be that big a deal. But it was causing Sapolsky booking headaches as to how do I place this person there? What if this person's not booked for that time? One of Danielson and McGuinness, I don't think, was at Man Up, which was the pay-per-view, or Driven, which was the pay-per-view it aired. It was all sorts of complications. So this was, like, tacked on at the end of the pay-per-view that it was on, if that makes sense. It doesn't really. And so this was really screwing up with Sapolsky because it was, like, from show to show to show, there was a logistics to it. But then it's like, well, I have to hold off on certain things or I have to jumpstart certain things because of the release schedule for the pay-per-views. And this was one of them. So it happens. And I think Danielson had probably had the title match that he won, that he had from winning this match in between then. So, so was this because... They were trying to pivot the financial model from DVD to pay-per-view and they sort of found themselves caught in two worlds. I think they saw it as another feather to attach to the boat and they probably just had an offer from a pay-per-view company. And this was the first time that the new owner, Carrie Silkin, who took over when Rob Feinstein left, yeah, really started to butt heads with Gabe Sapolsky over ideas, which came to a head when they started doing promotional stuff with The Wrestler and... Gabe Sapolsky had been booking it so that Tyler Black was going to win the Ring of Honor world title. But instead, Carrie Silkin said, I want us to take advantage of the wrestler's popularity. And who's the guy we've got on the roster that's as close as we have to Randy the Ram Robinson? I think it's Jerry Lynn. So I want Jerry Lynn to be world champion. (laughs) Is that because he also has blonde long hair? Essentially. And he's a middle-aged man. But his narrative of throwing everything away and all that sort of stuff does not line up with Randy the Ram Robinson in the slightest. And I think Gabe Sapolsky knew that. Because Gabe had brought Jerry Lynn in as a challenger for Nigel McGuinness as champion. But it was very much a supporting feud. It was not up there with Danielson, Austin Aries, Tyler Black. It wasn't one of those ones. 
It was a sort of just keep things going whilst we get the next guy lined up situation. In the DVD, he explains how he was going to book it, but we'll cover that more when we get to Nigel McGuinness as world champion later on in this run. But I'm just saying that this was the starting period of Ring of Honor's booking and Gabe Sapolsky's power sort of starting to ebb away. Right, okay. But I find it funny watching this is that this kind of encapsulates what Joseph Monticello's underlying theory of the Danielson McGuinness feud is which is that Danielson is Mozart and McGuinness is Salieri and I'm not he's not saying it's one for one exactly but just there's similarity and I don't fully agree with that because that implies that Salieri because Salieri is ultimately presented as not a very have you seen Amadeus no it's a great film it's it's one of my top 10 favorite films so watch it it's an order And I, look, I know how curated your lists are, so that 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 carries a cachet and the sheer volume of films you watch. So maybe we do that as a special little silver screen visions at the end of this. <laughs> anyway, in the film, the basic premise is that Salieri loves music and is a gentleman and has done all the right things. He's worked his way up in the court of the king of Austria. He's like the the court musician. He's the most fated writer of operas and symphonies in Vienna at that time, but. Mozart is around and Mozart is essentially presented as a punk as a rebellious spirit as a brat mischievous and and horrid and vile and has an annoying laugh but he's touched by genius and Salieri's really the only one that realizes it and so he gets he suffers terrible envy of Mozart and fury at God for giving the gifts to Mozart and not giving it to him. Now, obviously, like we say, the underlying story of this is that Nigel McGuinness is great as he is. Danielson still may be one step better, and that is the story coming out of this match. Right. But where it doesn't match up with Amadeus is that Salieri is beloved by the people and the court, but Salieri knows it's because they don't know what they're talking about. And they don't actually get what great music is. His isn't, but Mozart's is. So is he like Coldplay, sort of? Like safe, middle-of-the-road music? Or at least he thinks he's like what I perceive Coldplay to be. Or people perceive Coldplay to be. Sort of. If Chris Martin also wished he was... I don't know. Serge from Kasabian or someone like that? Or one of the Gallaghers? No, because that's not... That's not a talented man, is it? <laughs> He's good at kicking a ball. I'll give him that. But yeah, it'd be someone like, I don't know. I guess Tom York, but that's like the most wanky obvious thing for me to say. But again, it's like you don't have these exact side for side comparisons one for one because life's not like that. Yeah. But what is, I think, noticeable in this match most of all is that the crowd is not as into McGuinness as they are into Danielson. They like McGuinness, they love Danielson. Mm. And I think that's the underlying issue throughout McGuinness's run, is that he's not Danielson. And that's really the story of this match, almost. Because this is as close as we get to it being completely fair and square. And the final sequence is both of them pushing themselves to their limit, and it's Danielson that finds that win. Every time McGuinness has beaten Danielson so far, it's been a count-out win, a strategic submission win, and he had a moral victory with how he had Danielson in trouble, but Danielson still kept the title coming out. Yeah, bled the clock out. And the one time there was a clean-as-a-whistle victory before this, it was when Danielson won their unification match and i guess generation now was a bit more of a clean as a whistle win even if it was like a technicality a small package yeah but i think what i love about this match and why i think it is often fated as the better of 
not just their series, but some argue the best Ring of Honor match of all time. It's the highest rated match of this series on Cage Match by like point zero two or something. And it's the third highest rated match on Cage Match for Ring of Honor overall. Okay. I think the reason for that, it's, it's as close as technical wrestling comes to feeling like a wild brawl. Yeah. Not because they're doing brawling moves, but... No. There are some spots like that. It's going to sound initially like a criticism. They cram a lot of stuff into not much time. But somehow they make it work in this instance. It's like a frantic tempo that makes sense for who's in the ring. And it you're, you are right. The crowd are an element because they're in from the start. The energy's there straight away. They don't have to set the table to create the energy. They can sort of skip that bit. <laughs> they are going straight into like fifth gear. I don't know how they're going to get the car out, car moving, but this time they do. Do you know, do you know what I mean? I think the key is that Danielson is now Hunter, not hunted. He's not hunting for McGuinness, but McGuinness is in the way. Yeah. And it reminded me of how it was noticeable that after Ric Flair lost the world title to Ricky Steamboat in the Chi-Town Rumble match, oh, that's yep. at the Clash of the Champions match, and to a slightly lesser extent, the Wrestle War match, especially actually in the, in the house show match in Landover. Oh. It was like the unofficial part of the trilogy that we covered. That Flair is actually now on the attack. He is trying to reclaim what was his. And so his aggression, his proportion of control of the match and the way that he controls it and how much meaner he is to Steamboats makes sense. And I see that in Danielson. And then when he goes up against Morishima, he's just desperately trying to fight him. And their matches are, again, some of the most highly rated matches in Ring of Honor history. And again, and this will feed into later issues with McGuinness, Danielson suffers a horrendous injury early in that title match with Morishima that he earns from this match, where he's like he gets a detached retina or his eye just gets completely messed up and he wrestles for the rest of the match and then he has to wrestle with an eye patch. Of course he wrestles with... Uh, mm. <laughs> he's not helped himself in his life, has he? I don't know if they do any spots of him like really is depth perception being screwed up because he has to wear an eye patch. That'd be great. If they, you know like the spot where McGuinness always does the headstand in the corner? Yeah. Which is such a cool spot because it is kind of like it doesn't look like it makes sense but then when people charge at him he's able to kick them away or dodge them or avoid them. But sometimes Danielson's able to find a way through it like in the epic encounters by doing a charging headbutt. I think in another one it was him doing a charging drop kick. But wouldn't it have been brilliant if they'd have had a match during the eye patch period and Danielson goes for the drop kick but because he doesn't have the right depth perception he like a foot or two i'm just thinking of that bit in um tries to get into a slap exchange and he just keeps missing him like in futurama why you little wow that hurt the air (laughs) i was thinking of the first episode stand still i don't have good depth perception (laughs) so yeah i mean some of the spots in this though are brutal i mean when danielson suplexes McGuinness over the barricade. Over's doing a bit of lifting there. It's flat straight onto, and he sort of like dribble. He doesn't dribble down. He sort of cascades down off the barrier after. It's kind of a precursor to those chair spots that Adam Cole does, where he turns the chairs around. I mean, it's not just Adam Cole, but he did it on the NXT show. I think Necro Butcher would do it as well in his matches. 
Moxley's defo done it. <laughs> yeah. And again, with this whole thing of Nigel McGuinness taking Danielson's moves and Danielson's mannerisms, saying I have till five or anything like that. In this match, it's McGuinness that goes to the top rope and dives out and does a cross body on Danielson and fully hits it. Oh, yeah. Like he when they do the action that. replaying, you just, yeah, you just see how much he nails Danielson. Better than any of the dives Danielson did, which, you know, admittedly two of them, I think, missed. Although the one in Unified was pretty amazing as well. Especially because that was going over, like, those theatre chairs, not, like, the foldable plastic ones. Wow, yeah. Those are harder, aren't they? The floor work is great. I do like the rebound lariat, but he does it sort of off the apron instead from McGuinness. And then Brian's just flung over to the barrier, which is the precursor to, as you mentioned, the crossbody to the outside, which is... Nigel flies like like a swan, just elegant there. And that leads to Danielson changing his strategy to what it's been in other previous matches, that he just goes for McGuinness's back then throughout, yeah. and McGuinness is screwed up at various points. Like It's always one of the things I love, and it's something you see in like Hiroshi Tanahashi matches so much, is McGuinness having to improvise within the match because of his underlying problem. So earlier on in the match, he tries to lift Danielson up into the ropes, for the Tower of London move, but between the setup in the ropes and him then getting him in position to do the move, it takes too long because his back's hurting him and Danielson's able to escape it. So later on in the match, McGuinness positions him where he needs to be, where it's like a reverse suplex or gold dust curtain call or something. Yeah. Because of where they are, the way that Danielson's body moves is that his legs are then caught on the top rope and so he's immediately in position for McGuinness to do the Tower of London spot. That was probably my favourite spot in the whole match, to be honest with you. It's instinct. He seizes, like you say, on the moment. But because he's having to scramble at that point, he's had his messed up back. Brian's had a great flurry of offence after that. Um, Although Brian has his messed up like leg at this point because there's that great counter sequence, which ends with like a nice sit-out powerbomb from Nigel. Immediately gets a half-crab on straight away from it and he's desperately trying to slow brian down quite like how tanahashi when he is in matches the dragon screw is a uh, offensive move but it's also defensive because if your opponent's slower then they're not going to hurt you as much they're not going to get you as much and that gives you more opportunity yeah this whole match just feels like two starving animals fighting for a scrap of food both men are so desperate to win this even more so than the unified match because it feels like they're both at at equal levels of energy and like resource because when it like the final five ten minutes of the unified match it's clearly mcginnis fighting from underneath but again the whole story of this these matches has been mcginnis building himself up to be danielson's equal yeah, and they are like if Morishima's number one in the promotion right now, McGuinness and Danielson are clearly like two A, two B. But who's two A and who's two B at this point? Because this is like the biggest match of Danielson since his comeback, and McGuinness has already fallen once to Morishima, I think. But he's clearly the one that I think the fans, you kind of the fans with Ring of Honor have always been in like an interaction with, at least during the Gabe era, Gabe's booking, and so they can t- you can tell by the vibes of everything that the thing is set up for McGuinness to be the champion eventually but mm. Danielson being there and the fact that Danielson wins the match 
I think is such a clever way to keep the series going. Because now at this point, because it was 2-1-1 going into this one. Two wins for Danielson, one win for McGuinness, and a draw. You would have thought, logistically, because they are trying to make McGuinness's equal, they would want it to be like 2-2-1. But instead, Danielson comes out, and it does seem like McGuinness is almost there, but he's still not quite there. And that a returning Danielson is probably still the best in the world, I guess. They came at it, they were at their full force, they were both in the slap exchanges, they were both trying to hit their finishers, and it was Danielson through a combination of staying in, busting his head open after a headbutt exchange, which we'll get to. But he still found that opening to apply the cattle mutilation. McGuinness keeps trying to reverse it, so Danielson realizes he has to do more. The elbows knocking him out, and then applying the cattle mutilation. And it, I was surprised at how quickly it was paid off that McGuinness was out. But I guess it works within the logistics that he was out when Danielson even applied the hold. Yeah, and they didn't want to do just exactly the same finish. Yeah, as the unified match. Yeah, there's an element of extra sadness for McGuinness as well because you mentioned the hunger. They're both hungry for prestige. They're both hungry to be the one to beat Morishima. But there's more, slightly more at stake for Nigel because he's never got that clean as a whistle definitive victory over Danielson. So considering that they're kind of moving him towards babyface, it kind of makes sense that he still has to chase after this. Yes, but I do think that this unintentionally leads to issues with McGuinness's character that they have to work with after he wins the title that maybe they didn't intend to initially, mm. but they kept it open. But also, many ways, sums up the tragedy of McGuinness in this storyline and arguably in his career as well. But we'll again, we'll get that more when we do like final reflections, I suppose. The last thing I want to talk about is that headbutt spot. So that replaces the... <sighs> and it's this time Danielson that comes out of it with the busted open head. And again, how much more of a badass does that make him look? Yeah, because when McGuinness bled from head from head injuries, he ended up losing. Danielson comes out winner. Yeah, you know, a lot more time happens between that and the finish of the unified match. But how did you feel watching it? You know, because obviously the the bleeding was hard way. It wasn't intended. No, and they only do like three or four, like I think two headbutts each. Look, we know what we know now about CTE. We know what we know about what Nigel McGuinness, how Nigel McGuinness's career had to end. Uh, um. Well, I think this was around the time. This would have been around the time Benoit situation happened, wouldn't it? Oh seven, oh seven was Benoit, yeah. I think that would have been July. So this was a month before that happened. And look, there's a reason we're mentioning that because look where CTE can get you. It's silly. It's quite needless, especially because this isn't the main match. This isn't the the be all and end all. It's a number one contenders match. It's not even for a bloody belt. It bothers me on two levels. The health and safety level it bothers me on. Yeah. I don't enjoy watching it. It takes me out of it. It's why, at time of recording, I still haven't watched the Hangman Page Swerve Strickland match. Because I know I'm going to have to go through some stuff that I don't necessarily want to watch when I watch wrestling. But we are... It melts to dig, give it the five stars. So at some point, we will have to cover it for the five-star project. And what bothers me as much as that, though, is that in these headbutt spots... They're doing it unnaturally because they're, like, hitting it, but only hitting it at, like, 75% force. Mm. You know what I mean? None of those headbutts are the headbutts you'd see happening in a Glasgow nightclub. No, because they're stooping down to do it. They don't go as hard. Yeah, it's unnatural. Yeah. And so they're not going full force, but they're going force enough that they're really in danger of hurting each other properly. 
And we've seen what happens when someone does do the full force headbutt, essentially. And well, they yeah. probably should have retired, which is Katsuyori Shibata. And somehow he's back. Somehow. Yeah. It's like the Palpatine. Somehow. <laughs> Katsuyori Shibata returned. I, well, I, mean, I, I wasn't trying to draw that comparison, but it's there. <laughs> Makes more sense than Amadeus one. I suppose. <laughs> Because, like, I always said, like, my favourite headbutt, it's not going to surprise you, Simon. It came from Bret Hart. Yeah. And it's a headbutt that he does to Jerry Lawler during their SummerSlam 93 match, where Jerry Lawler's tried to escape from wrestling by claiming he was injured. And then when Bret gets his substitute, Doinky and the Sharpshooter, he comes into the ring and attacks him with his crutch and miraculously is able to walk again. And as he's leaving with Doink the Clown... He's told by Jack Tunney that if he doesn't wrestle this match that he's booked to have with Bret Hart, he'll be suspended for life from the WWF. Ah, okay. Bret Hart, who was being held back until that announcement was made, just bursts up into frame and starts just beating the shit out of Jerry Lawler <laughs> walking back towards the ring. And there's a moment where he just hits him with a headbutt. And it looks so brutal. And Brett looks like he's going full force. But obviously what he's doing is the way that headbutts were used to be done, which is where you put your thumb over the point that you're going to hit the person. And you hit the thumb or, like, the, the base of your hand. Yeah. Like, the, the join of the, the hand and the index finger. And so he was able to do that full force, and nothing was a problem. And Jerry Lawler and Brett are famously, like, two of the safest workers in all of wrestling. Who have had... Well, Jerry Lawler especially has had some of the wildest matches. Yeah. I mean, the bitter irony, I suppose, that Bret Hart did end up having to retire due to concussions. But let's not get into that. But it wasn't what... It, well, that wasn't one that he caused, yeah. was but it? But Bret would never have done these headbutt spots. And obviously, there was a recent thing of him complaining about thigh slapping and chopping and all that. And when I when I look at my favourites, I don't see there's any reason for Brian Danielson and Nigel McGuinness to do this. And it's like one of the worst spots in the whole match. The blood is an unintentional plus that helps with the drama. Yeah, it wasn't like, like you say, it wasn't planned blood. It's just a happy, it's weird saying it considering what we're talking about, but it is a happy accident. And it's one of those things that also makes it clear how much the blading style of bleeding so often just looks completely unnatural. Yeah... Because Danielson's, it's like a, a weird splodge over his forehead, and it's like trailing down his back as well at, towards the end of it. And it's better than the alternative, but wow, the whole the whole blood thing's a different conversation altogether. Yeah, but I mean, this is I understand why this is seen as a classic, and again, like Unified, it's on that range of for me, like four and three quarters to five stars. Mm. And maybe as a more perfect piece of work, it is better than unified but unified is the more historically significant and the one that people refer back to more often it seems i guess because it was and also for me it's the sentimental side of it being in england and everything well there's that and the stakes are higher because it is for titles yeah but there's still like i said it's two hungry starving animals fighting for a scrap of food which in many ways can make it seem even more important and it's also danielson like it's his ultimate test is he fully back it's mcginnis's ultimate test can he beat the guy that he can't beat completely 100% clean as a whistle yet. Yeah. So 
there's as much to that as with or without the title. The crowd are just 100% just into it from start to finish because, again, I suppose also this is a time that a crowd that has seen that unified match, unlike probably the crowd for the Epic Encounter 2. And also I think they were amped up, they were encouraged to be amped up because they were going to do it on pay-per-view, so it was almost like they were trying to make Ring of Honor look as good as possible, so it's just a constant... One of those few matches where there's just a constant fever pitch of excitement, the likes of which you usually only see when wrestling is depicted in a movie or a tv show yeah uh so that also adds it up so yeah it's again i think it's like 1a 1b with this and unified so far but there are still more matches with also highly thought of for us still to cover where do you stand on this one compared to unified compared to unified i I don't know for me the emotive factors and let's face it a little bit of a UK bias tip unified over the edge for me. This was really, really good. If forced to a rating or at least a range of a rating, where would you go? Mid fours, I'd say about four and a half. Like if I had to put a number to it with this one, it was it was great pace. Nothing wrong with it. It's just I don't know something was a little bit lacking. I, I, we talked in the last episode how it was a bit of an epilogueness to I know that's not a word. Before, before you say anything there was a sense of it being a a, a added on chapter uh epic encounter 2 this kind of has the same to me not as much well i disagree with that not as much i i guess it's something in my head of because they're not fighting for the belt and that's what i've witnessed so far in the season of rewind the rivalry remember i'm only i remember i'm only watching these matches in isolation i i wasn't a ring of honor fan at the time unlike your good self well let's say then that instead this was the match this is the exact match that took place at epic encounter 2 two weeks after unified crowds just as rabid that the exact same sequences the exact same finish danielson retains his ring of honor world title yet again would it then have that extra, like, stakes of it would it have then put it above Unified in that situation. Especially if it was like, Jesus Christ, they'd had the Unified match and two weeks later they have this. <laughs> yeah, see, yeah, the timing of that would be great for it as well. So long as the crowd went with them, look, the crowd were what the crowd were in Epic Encounter and they worked with that accordingly. But look, those two in the ring could easily have got, they have gone for the gears at a high pace and took the crowd with them. So... Let, let's look at the you know the abilities of the people we're talking about. The crowd would have been dragged along. <laughs> so that has been driven, and we've just reached the halfway point now. Five matches down, five matches to go, and some more events will happen in the interim between these two shows. And the status is switched again, but it's also a different kind of stakes on the line and a different match structure as well, I suppose. So Simon. Where are we for our next match? When is it? What's it for? And what is the event? So, we are in Las Vegas, glamorous Las Vegas, on the 19th of October 2007. So, uh, we're into the autumn of 2007 now. We're at an event called Survival of the Fittest, which seems to be a straight-up elimination tournament. We are in a first round match of the tournament. And as luck would have it, what a match to open with in the first round. How, how lucky is that from the draw? It's Nigel McGuinness, Brian Danielson. But until then, Simon, how can people get in touch with you, 
to give you more advice on how to perform a proper headbutt. <laughs> they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I am so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the seconds of airtime McGuinness got on his dive over the barrier. My name's Lorcan Munnan, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A in artery, N for the N in noggin. That's my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you put in at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lntyspod at gmail.com. Lntyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something, and I hope you'll continue with us on our journey as we rerun the rivalry. <laughs>